On my immediate right is uh, Eli Sanders, associate editor of The Stranger, Pulitzer Prize winner. He's also a, f a former uh, bandmate from Week in Review on KOW. He and I did that for years together. Uh, and uh, he's been doing a lot of reporting on Facebook's transparency as it applies to local elections. Uh, it's a very interesting work, and hopefully you'll mention about that. Uh, next is uh, Viana Davia, a relatively new reporter at the Seattle Times, but she's doing a really impressive work uh, covering major issues like homelessness. She also hails from San Antonio, so she has a multi-city perspective that she can uh, uh, give us. And then Matt Powers is professor of communications, um, a professor at the School of Communications at the University of Washington. Uh, he looks at media and culture. He's currently, one of his uh, studies is comparing the practice of metropolitan journalism in two cities, Toulouse, France, and Seattle. So hopefully we can hear about what's happening in uh, France. It's very exciting. A very exciting place politically right now. Um, I wanted to start <coughs> with some, uh, just to kind of give a little context, a few facts uh, about the state of journalism uh, and the media in this country. In 2008, uh, Pew Center study, the total number of newsroom employees dropped 23% between 2008 and 2017. Newspaper newsrooms, which are the lion's share of, uh, of employment, 60%, dropped 45%. So roughly in, the la in 10 years, we've lost about half of the newsroom employees uh, nationwide. It went from 71,000 employees to 39,000. There have been slight upticks in digital employment. Uh, it's been relatively flat in television um, uh, and radio, uh, but those didn't compensate for the newsroom losses. On the positive side, despite accusations of fake news, trust in media, particularly local media, is up. Um, the Pointer Institute said that trust in media has risen since 2016 to, uh, <clears throat> to the low or mid-70s in terms of an approval rating, uh, a trust rating, uh, which equals the high point of media confidence that was recorded by the Gallup survey in 1976. So uh, trust went way down during 2015 and 16, but has bounced up uh, rather surprisingly. Uh, the Duke uh, Reporters Lab reports that during the midterms, local media did little fact-checking of campaigns and candidate claims. Most of the fact-checking journalism that was done during the midterms was at the national level. Some was done, there were certain projects at the local level, but for the most part, it appeared that this was too uh, uh, resource intensive for local uh, outlets to emphasize. Also, Pew reports broadcast TV news audiences are declining still, especially among the young. The vast majority of broadcast TV viewers are over 50 and the largest share of folks are over 65. While digital subscriptions are up, especially at national papers like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, general newspaper readership continues to decline. The Pew Research Center's analysis in 2016 showed circulation of weekday daily newspapers had fallen 8%, the 28th year of decline. Uh, newspaper readership uh, circulation is now 
at its lowest level since 1945. This was accompanied by a double-digit decline in ad revenue. So, journalism has a lot of challenges here. The PI has become a kind of clickbaity website. Uh, the Seattle Weekly is a shadow of its former self. The Stranger is every other week in print. City Arts just folded. Tacoma News Tribune in Tacoma just announced uh, more layoffs. A change is inevitable, but is this, uh, is this the new normal? It's one of the questions I want to look at tonight. Um, and what I want to start off with is by asking each of the panelists here to give us a kind of a thumbnail of when they entered journalism, what was it like, and how has it changed uh, during the course of their career? So let's start with you, Elaine. So I uh, was in college on the East Coast and getting ready to graduate and really interested in journalism, and it was 1999. And I got a summer internship at the Seattle Times, which was dreamy to me. And I came back, and I was a summer intern here. And in 1999, the Seattle Times was a huge newsroom and a huge newspaper with big ambitions to be kind of the voice of the West Coast or the West Coast uh, or the Pacific Northwest plus the Pacific Rim even. Um, and reporters would fly all over and do stories from Alaska and Eastern Washington and Idaho and beyond and from Japan. Uh, so this was, this was kind of the newsroom that I landed in and I learned a lot. I uh, got to work in the bureaus that the Seattle Times had at the time, up north in, I think, Shoreline and uh, out east in Bellevue. And all of those have disappeared now. But uh, one of the things that was very um, formative for me was that I had wandered into a newsroom that was headed toward a big newspaper strike. And in 2001, uh, labor tensions at the Times resulted in a 49-day strike. It was the longest strike in uh, maybe in West Coast newspaper history. It was the longest something. The reason I'm telling you about this is because in 2001, the striking newspaper workers, which included me, I was at that point a kind of long-term intern. Um, so they called it a three-year resident, like I was a medical, you know, that, that I was, like I was be gonna become a doctor afterward. But uh, so anyway, I was a long-term intern. And the, and the interns slash residents were on strike as well because we were in the union. And the, someone in the union got the smart idea of like, OK, well, we're on strike, and we don't own any printing presses, but there's anyone like the internet. It just kind of is new, but anyone can make a web page. Why don't we make a strike paper but make it online? It'll be super easy. And the motto was like, it was the Union Record, which is an old historic name for a uh, union paper in Seattle. And uh, we, it was like, all the talent in one place was the motto or something like that. And we put out a really good uh, paper. And we gave the Times and the, the scab workers and the people who stayed a, a real run for their money. But none of us realized what we had stumbled into. If we had not gone back to work, you know, if we had just kept working uh, at, at this online, what was effectively an online startup, 
we might have been able, you know, with a little venture capital and whatever, to build an incredible, ahead of its time uh, platform. But no one realized it. The Seattle Times didn't realize what what we had created. We didn't realize what we created. The strike ended. We all went back to work. And then all those statistics that Knut just read you happened. So <laughs> that's what it was like for me at the beginning. Um, so I started, uh, my story is somewhat similar to Eli's. I started at the San Antonio Express News, which is the, the newspaper of San Antonio, which is my hometown back in Texas. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's a mid-sized daily, but it's, it's the daily of um, the city. And at the time, when I started, it was, you know, it was, it was much like the Seattle Times. It was very huge. It was the largest paper kind of closest to the U.S.-Mexico border. So we, we thought of ourselves as both, you know, the paper of South Texas, but the paper of the border, which is huge in Texas. Um, so we had a bureau in Mexico City. We had a bureau in Washington, D.C., um, we had bureaus across Texas, and yeah, we would, at the drop of a hat, you would travel, um, not me, but my older colleagues would travel across the world for a story, so it was a very, very different time. And we had the web, um, you know, it was already up and running, but, you know, you didn't really, you didn't think about it that much. About two years into my tenure there, so we're talking 2005 maybe, I started um, on our crime team, so covering breaking news, crime reporting, and... You know, we would get things on the web, but there wasn't this, like, get it on the web now. It's like you'd, you'd kind of do your stories for the night, and then they would show up on the web overnight. And, it, and so you just didn't really worry about it. Um, and I left the paper in 2007 to go to graduate school to get my master's uh, to study documentary film at UC Berkeley. I ended up coming back to the paper two years later after I finished. But when I went to go tell the editor at the time that I was leaving to go to grad school, and what I was going to study, because I felt like I don't have any other skills. I, I'm, I'm just a writer. I need to do something else. Um, he said, I think that is the right move, because I look out on that newsroom, and I wonder how much longer is it going to be. And actually, um, my second year, a few months before I graduated in 2009, there was a huge number of layoffs um, at the San Antonio paper. Um, kind of by a miracle, I was able to get hired on after that. Um, and the Express News is a Hearst paper, and Hearst also owns the PI. So we are still, we still have a print product. We are not online only the way the PI has, has become, but um, you know, sort of that same corporate mentality. And that, and that was a, a rough time for us. So um, we've experienced the same hits, and, and the Seattle Times is you know, struggling like every other newspaper. Um, <clears throat> so I'm one of those people who um, is one of the former journalists who's no longer a journalist. So uh, I left journalism in 2008 to go to graduate school. Um, I worked for a Gannett newspaper on the East Coast. Um, and I worked, the last thing I had was in the online division. Um, and a lot of the same stuff that you both talked about, it was sort of early days in terms of uh, online journalism. Um, in 2008, when I decided to go to graduate school under having a conversation with my then editor and saying, this is what I'm going to do. I, you know, I, I want to study how journalists are reacting to these sort of major transformations that are coming. Um, and he said, well, that's great. That should take about a couple of months, right? Um, and I'm still studying it now. So um, that's just to say that there's an enormous amount of transformation that's happening, the transformations that are happening in journalism. 
Uh, but the transformations are also happening in journalism education. And so at the University of Washington, in the Department of Communication in general, but also in the journalism program in particular, it's a recurrent and a constant question for myself and my colleagues to try and figure out what are the skills um, that students need to learn and what are the types of jobs that we're actually training them for. Um, I'm going to jump in and, and just give a little bit of my background uh, in entering journalism, which uh, I really did in college. I helped start the college newspaper at Evergreen uh, in Olympia during, during the Watergate era. So we made the life of the administrators there miserable because we treated them all like Nixon. <laughs> I would say that the, one of the things that really um, was different is I'm, I'm old enough that I remember the newsrooms of typewriters and cigarette smoke and teletypes delivering the news, pre-Twitter, pre-internet, pre-smoking bans. And uh, it, was, it was fun. Uh, the, I worked on a, a number of magazines. I ended up uh, being hired by Seattle Weekly to start an East Side alternative paper called East Side Week in 1990. I then became editor of Seattle Weekly and was there for years and then got involved with Crosscut after I left the Weekly as a startup. And I'm, I'm the oldest or the longest tenured Crosscut employee at almost 12 years now, which, yeah, I thought it was going to be like a one or two year thing. Um, the changes I've seen, I've seen a lot of the technological changes, just, just moving to PCs and that kind of thing and not, not having to do press type and all those kinds of things. Um, and I know that uh, the other thing that existed when I started out was there was a formula for success. In other words, if you want to start a magazine or start a newspaper, and I've done both, um, you, there was a formula that said, well, you raise X amount of money, you spend X amount of money to get X amount of paid circulation, you get your renewal rate up to a certain percentage of uh, renewing subscribers, and you will make money within five years. Um, and those were national formulas, but they worked locally too. They were the, their own version of it. And the thing that I've seen that's vanished from uh, the media business and newspapers in particular um, is the formula disappeared. It no longer worked. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the daily newspapers uh, began hemorrhaging advertising. And that was partly related to uh, their advertising base changing. Um, Seattle used to have tons of local retail chains like Magnolia Hi-Fi, and they advertised locally, and then suddenly everything was a national chain, and they didn't necessarily advertise in the way that they used to. And then the scourge that did in the alternative newspapers, which were obviously an alternative to daily newspapers, was Craigslist. Uh, alternative newspapers had found a comfortable revenue niche, made tons of money on classified advertising. And uh, at the time, Craigslist came along, Seattle Weekly, where I was editor, was owned by the Village Voice media. And uh, they just made money hand over fist from their classified sections. I mean, millions of dollars. And all that money disappeared within the course of about three months. I mean, a black hole. I'll, I'll never forget the, the head of Bill's Voice Media coming and saying, guess what? <laughs> our, our revenues are gone. 
uh, <clears throat> and this was something that affected daily papers as well as uh, alternative weeklies. So the formula vanished, and everybody has been scrambling ever since to find a formula that will fund quality journalism, whether it's local or national, and that's sort of the scramble that we find ourselves in. In terms of local journalism, you guys, um, what, what, what is Seattle lacking right now? What do we need? What, what, where's, where's the gap here? I mean, we, you know, we, we've gone from, I, I opened a time capsule from 1928 down at the Opera House. In 1928, Seattle had four daily newspapers. Now we basically have one. And uh, those newspapers, I actually got them out and, and read, read them. And <clears throat> there was almost no story that was the same in any of the four papers. They, did, they, they were not cloning each other. They, you know, the, the Seattle Star, which was sort of the uh, liberal paper, you know, had a story about uh, uh, labor activists in the Soviet Union. Uh, the Seattle Times had a crime story. They used to be called the Seattle Crimes, you know. They were sort of this tabloidy paper for a while back in the 20s. But every, every paper had a very distinct thing. I also do a lot of historical research, and um, if you read through uh, the Seattle Times or, or the Pioneer era newspapers, it's amazing how dense they are with information. Tiny type, page after page of news, especially after the Telegraph, they could get news from around the country. People were very well informed, and I think in many ways better informed 100 years ago uh, than now. So, you know, we know that we're not, you know, doing everything we could be doing because of these losses. What, where, what are the gaps? Well, uh, as you were talking about all these papers, I, I was thinking about a news junkie like me or you or any of us, you'd want all four of the papers and then you'd sit down at a coffee shop and you'd read them, right? So one thing that we're missing, I think as a society as a whole, and this is just kind of a, a very big swing, but uh, time. Like on the consumer side, no one has time or attention span anymore to sit down and read four papers or two or one that's thick enough to turn through and get a lot of different views and serendipitously find stories that you weren't looking for. So that's on the consumer side and uh, that's a hard one. But on the producing news side, David Boardman, who used to be an editor at the Seattle Times and uh, guided the Times through some of the hardest parts of this downturn for the news business, eventually stopped accepting the kind of corporate speak that newsroom leaders sometimes have to put forward that euphemizes what's going on. And he just started saying, less is not more, that's a lie, less is less. And when you have fewer journalists in uh, the city, you just cannot produce enough good quality news. And so that's the first thing that you need. You need more working journalists. People don't I sound like Donald Trump. People don't realize, people don't talk about this, people don't know, but it's true. People don't realize uh, that, you know, half, probably half the journalists that uh, worked in Seattle five years ago or seven years ago are not working anymore. You've got a city that's population has, I don't know, grown by a third, 
and the number of people who produce news for that city has probably dropped by half. You have a core of people in Olympia covering the state capital that can't even be called a core anymore because it's decimated. You used to have maybe a dozen reporters or more covering the state capital day in, day out. Now you have, like, you could count them on fewer than, you know, the fingers on your one hand. Um, so I could go on, but that is where I would start. You, if you want to get back, and I don't know, you, you can't kind of make the news great again in this way of, like, bringing back the old days. That's never going to come back. But if you want to go back to some modern facsimile of four papers densely filled with, you know, well-thought-out, well-produced information, you need more working journalists than we have right now. I mean, yeah, I would agree completely that we, we all need more working journalists, so I don't want to totally repeat that answer. Um, I will say that I think um, in Seattle there is a, a decent amount of variety, actually, of the news sources. Um, you know, the loss of City Arts is a big one, I would say, um, but having Crosscut, having KUOW, having The Stranger, there's having The Emerald, um, is, which is a, a South Seattle publication um, is really important and there are places that don't have so it's not quite you know the level of four dailies San Antonio used to have two robust dailies that were in a constant war with each other so they were always competing probably much like the PI and the times were but I still think that there is um, a decent landscape here of media options probably more than other cities and what we are lucky to have in Seattle I would say is is a population that seems to really engage more than a lot of other places, I think. Um, in the news, you know, it's, it's a well-read population that seems to hunger for that. Um, but what we need more of, of course, are, are people subscribing and reading and pledging. Um, that, that's a gap we can always work to fill. Um, so what's the biggest gap? The biggest gap in Seattle is the same as the biggest gap in any other major metropolitan city in the United States which is a, a non-functioning business model for most news organizations, which is not to suggest that it's the same at every single news outlet in every single place or that every journalist feels it in the same way. Um, but Seattle has been particularly hard hit in terms of employment numbers, partly because of the loss of the PI, but also partly because of major restructuring that's gone on at some of the major news outlets. So, I mean, 10 years ago, before the PI just went online, it had 165 people in the newsroom. And now it's fewer than 10. I think it might even be less than that. Um, the Seattle Times uh, in the mid-2000s had um, about 350. Um, you would know the exact number now, but my guess it's probably around a couple hundred. Um, and so it's just major, major uh, restructuring that actually in Seattle is slightly worse than it is uh, in the national average. Um, now, that's the sort of- how, how so? How is it slightly worse? So in terms of uh, over the past decade, newsroom employment in Seattle has been cut almost by half, whereas uh, the national average, actually the statistics you, you point out, right. the newsroom average is somewhere between 25% and a third. Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's major um, in Seattle. Um, in terms of gaps, I, I would just point out a couple of things. I think one of the questions is not whether or not there's going to continue to be journalism, uh, in Seattle or elsewhere, I think one of the major questions is for whom is journalism going to be produced? Um, that is, in, is increasingly because you need to get money for it, because there are increasingly subscription models, because there's a lot of philanthropic work that's going for it, oftentimes it skews towards the segments of society that you know are 
better off in terms of more wealth, more education. Um, and so to some degree, you, you do have a situation where you have sort of quality news for quality people. Um, you know, not, I don't exactly mean it that way, but um, that's one sort of worrisome thing. I think the, the Emerald is a, is a great example of something that's a counter trend to that, but I would just say that that's a relatively rare example um, in the city. And so I think that's one real concern is, is for whom is the journalism being made well, can I just follow up on that really yeah, quick? Yeah, please. Um, that is an ongoing problem, and I don't think it's a new problem that I should say about newsrooms is increasing diversity of newsrooms is incredibly important. Um, I'm a journalist of color, but you know our numbers could be higher in the Seattle Times. They could have been higher at my paper in San Antonio, Texas, which is a city that is majority Latino, and we still should have had better numbers probably in that newsroom. Um, so I think that is sort of where this could doubly collide and be a problem. If you have an industry issue and then you continue to not have journalists of color and diversity in those newsrooms, well, the problem's going to get even, even worse. Um, if they're already not there, you can imagine some long-term damage. Some of this discussion uh, reminds me to not be all doom and gloom and point out what a lot of people point out, which is the incredible opportunity here. What has undermined the business model for journalism is the lack of barrier to publishing. Anyone can publish anything at any time. And so this kind of um, monopoly on the, or you know, uh, duopoly when you have the Seattle Times and PI of the mechanism for distributing information, well that's over and that's a good thing for people whose voices felt like, felt, who felt that their voices were left out of the discussion. So there's that potential, right? Anyone can start a South Seattle Emerald or uh, five South Seattle Emeralds, a region of the city that has really been undercovered historically by the mainstream media in this town. But then you get to the problem uh, that Professor Powers pointed out, which is, okay, but then how do you pay your rent? And that's the problem. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. So. For example, Crosscut has gone with the sort of public radio, public television model of nonprofit organization and ask people to subscribe or support or donate, get grants. Uh, there's a certain amount of sponsorship money, host events. You know, we've gone, and, and there are kind of online dailies like Crosscut in many cities now though some of them are very marginal and it's, it's hard to make work, but that's kind of one model. Another model is the billionaire model. Um, I had the opportunity uh, a week and a half ago to interview uh, Bob Woodward uh, at the Paramount when he was in town promoting his book. And uh, we had a great conversation on stage and one of, the que one of the questions I asked him was, was it better working for Jeff Bezos or Kay Graham? And uh, he stopped for a long, long moment and said, I promised myself I would answer every question that you asked. <laughs> he was reluctant for that. But one of the things he said was that um, he, he said he'd known Jeff Bezos for you know, 20 years and that uh, he had been really impressed that Bezos had, exp had expressed an interest in having the Washington Post vet every candidate in 2016. And that he hired 40 people, the Post did, um, 
uh, to do that. And uh, he also said that when his book, Fear, which is about the first year of the Trump administration, it's a great book, you should read it if you haven't had a chance, it's scary, uh, and oddly very of the moment. Um, and he said he called Jeff Bezos as a courtesy to tell him that uh, this controversial book was about to come out. And he said, Jeff Bezos said to him, I have your back. Now, you know, one solution to this problem is finding enlightened owners who have the deep pockets to essentially keep newspapers going. And I, <clears throat> I've heard people say, you know, well, gee, I wish Jeff Bezos would buy the Seattle Times or I wish, you know, Jeff Bezos would do X, Y, and Z. Uh, is that an answer to some of these problems or is that just more, more trouble? <laughs> I, I, it can be an answer. I mean, we're at a moment where you got to accept whatever answer works in the moment, and when it stops working, you make some noise about that and find a new answer. But uh, it has worked in some cases. I think the Washington Post under Bezos is a great example of a billionaire doing something wonderful and uh, keeping the right distance from uh, distressed media property or whatever Wall Street would call them. Um, but there are other examples of this not going well. The New Republic is a great example. There was a guy, and now I can't remember his name, who had, uh, he was not Zuckerberg, but he was in the dorm room with Zuckerberg, and he came out with, uh, with many millions and worked at Facebook and left Facebook and bought the New Republic, which was a great magazine uh, with a history of great and proud stances and moving the um, political debate in DC and around the country, bought it and uh, was gonna bring it into the digital age and basically destroyed it. So, you know, it depends on your billionaire, basically. Any other thoughts? Well, I would just agree with that and just say, um, it's, it's an answer. Um, it's worrisome if the sort of hope you're putting in the press as a sort of foundation of democracy is a bunch of rich people who can change their mind at any point in time. So I think it's, it's a bad bet to make in the long term. And, and I'd also say that even if um, an owner can infuse a newsroom with a lot of resources, which is, which is very important, right, and allows you potentially to cover a community better because you could just throw more bodies at, at the community, um, it nece don't, won't necessarily change sort of people's consuming habits. You know, we have to give them something they want. We have to continue to, to engage readers. When we talked about the beginning, that people, their time, uh, are they willing to sit down with what we produce? Um, are we reaching a lot of people, but they're of a certain age group and not another? I mean, so, I mean, you have to think about the quality of what you're producing. I think we need to all be more targeted about who our audiences are. I mean, that's the struggle of a general interest newspaper is that you're trying to cover a whole city, but that means you're trying to please a lot of people. Um, so I definitely think we all have to think about our identities, and it's not just about who owns us. Well, the idea of the quality of the consumer product, I want to bring that to you guys personally. So tell us what your, your news diet is. What are you reading? Where are you getting your news? Uh, and, and local and national, but but you know, how are you staying informed 
beyond your own reporting. Well, okay, so to stick with the metaphor of the diet, I've really, like, yo-yoed, you know? I've, I've, <laughs> I've, since Trump was elected, I really reevaluated my media diet and changed some things, went in some other directions, went back, you know? But uh, at the moment, um, I, well, why don't I talk about some of the phases? There were, like, some periods in the kind of shock after the election where I felt like, okay, I can only take this through the filter of a podcast. And I would start listening just to, like, The Daily, the New York Times summary podcast in the morning that's kind of short. Or, you know, more recently, NPR's Up First in the morning. And that would be where I would get my kind of national news. Um, and it was concise, and I could handle it and digest it. And then at some point, I was like, this is a terrible way to start the day. And I, <laughs> I, it was too, too dark for the morning. And then I would go back to kind of consuming avidly online when I get to work. And that's kind of where I am now. And so for national news, I bounce between the New York Times and the Washington Post, which isn't always for me. I respect what they do. I, I think they are kind of the gold standard. Um, but I also go to the Drudge Report because that guy is really quick and he's also conservative, so I can kind of see what the conservative slant and mindset is for the day. I will sometimes take a deep breath and see what's on the homepage of Fox News just for an impressive distortion of reality. <laughs> I, will, I went for a while to Breitbart and I, then I couldn't take it. Um, but I, I do really think it's important to travel out of your filter bubble and the New York Times and the Washington Post, as good as it is and as closer to reality than others, I think it is, um, they are, uh, I, th I think it's important to travel into these other realities. So I try to do that. Um, and then I still consume podcasts and I... What about uh, locally? Oh, uh, locally, I... Um, so I, d I was just going to say I spend a lot of time on Twitter, probably too much, and that is where I get some of my local news. But I will just kind of make the tour to Crosscut and the Seattle Times, and I work at The Stranger, so I'm inside the slog, uh, so <laughs> I know what's going on. And uh, I will... I, I'm sorry, but I never go to the PI anymore. I, I will... I follow Joel Connolly on Twitter, so sometimes I'll see his tweets. Um, but... That's, I guess, about it. What am I missing? The Emerald? Um, I would go to, or more often, I would find its articles through tweets. So I'm, I'm a heavy user of Twitter as kind of an aggregator or almost a like, modern RSS feed for me. Right. Um, I'm a lot like you again, Eli. Like I, in the last couple of years, I've really found myself... I used to listen to NPR every single morning, um, you know, getting ready for work, and I found that I just couldn't... I just couldn't do it anymore. I don't know why. I love NPR, but really kind of switching to podcasts, I would, would listen to the daily kind of every day. I was like, all right, I, I kind of got what I need to know there. For some reason, I just couldn't take the constant news. Um, every morning, I'm reading the Seattle Times. Um, I'll go to all the local sites, Crosscut, um, Stranger, um, C is for Crank, which is sort of a local political blog. There's a Seattle City Hall blog, which I'm forgetting the name of right now. SCC Insight. Yeah, SCC Insight, which is kind of like an insider's guide to City Hall, because a lot of what I do um, connects to City Hall, so I'll check that out. Um, and then I have subscriptions, you know, digital subscriptions to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and my hometown paper, uh, the Express News. Um, but I find it's good to separate myself from that. And listening to a lot of podcasts, actually, of, of not just news analysis, but I find in the last two years, I've really wanted to do more um, just sort of 
cultural analysis um, almost. I want to hear from podcasts from people of color. I find that that really necessary, that it keeps me sane and just sort of um, hearing the diversity of voices. Um, <clears throat> so I have a print subscription to the New York Times. Uh, I have a digital subscription to the Seattle Times. I read both of those daily, sort of first thing when I get up. Um, beyond that, it's uh, either podcasts or entirely what I get on a social media feed. Uh, I always look at the um, Washington Post first because I love their commentary section. Uh, kind of check the headlines. I, I, I still check the New York Times, although I'm very disappointed in the way they're um, covering the administration and, or the way, they, the way they frame a lot of their reporting. Um, uh, the Washington Post is more likely to say, Trump lied today, whereas the New York Times does the, Trump said such and such, other people say such and such. Uh, so I find that really annoying. Uh, but yes, I look at the Times, I listen to KOW fairly frequently, um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, I don't, And then, you know, Twitter's changed my life. I, I don't know about you, but I'm, ever since 2016, I am in the, I'm awake at three in the morning, almost every night, to check Twitter, to see what's coming out of the White House, or see what, what kind of, you know, hellacious thing has happened. Um, and I, so I'm not, I, I haven't escaped from that kind of, what is that, hyper alert or whatever, uh, hyper vigilance, my amygdala is uh, still functioning. I usually am able to go back to sleep, uh, but, uh, and Twitter reminds me of the old, uh, I mentioned earlier the teletypes, uh, you know, from Reuters and AP that clacked in the newsrooms. It's, it's like your own private teletype. Uh, and I actually love that about it. Um, and I see a lot of stuff I would not otherwise see because people are out there finding cool stuff. Um. But, but Twitter's interesting. But I can't really spend much time on it because I think it can suck you in. Like, in some ways, it's a great way to get access to other news that you might not otherwise see. But it's so, I mean, it's so um, reactionary, or it can be so reactionary, or, or people, you're just, you see something, and if I see someone, you know, come at me for something, my urge is to respond, but then I have to say, no, I have to stay calm. And I feel like that's one of the issues with Twitter that's sort of made this news environment a little dicey and, and dangerous, but I don't know what else thinks about that. No, I agree with you. I think Twitter and social media in general, I mean, we're in this moment of trying to figure out how not to do this, but it, social media was engineered to uh, promote the expressing of strong emotion because strong emotion is what keeps people interested in coming back and creates a kind of addictive uh, relationship with either Facebook or Twitter or whatever that they can then use to, one, gather a lot of information about you and sell it to advertisers, and two, deliver you a lot of advertising. So it's totally corroded our discourse because now all we're good at is yelling at each other because that's the, the best, strongest, easiest emotion to put out there, and that's what moves on Twitter or Facebook. Facebook has kind of uh, de-emphasized that more recently. But anyway, I, I agree with the quoting of the discourse part. And then I also, um, as much as I love the kind of way that Twitter just mainlines information into my news junkie kind of bloodstream, um, I think, okay, me and Knut and everyone I know 
are working for free for Jack Dorsey while we struggle, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, while we struggle in businesses that don't have a business model because, partly, all the journalists are now working for free for Twitter and Facebook and whatever. Like I'm, We're all content producers for these people who don't pay us. You too, if you're on Twitter. And uh, that's a problem. So I'll, I'll just say one thing. I think all of this is really important. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that it's not as if Twitter or social media are the beginning of this. Um, and in fact, one of the big things that journalism is responding to are simply broader changes in society. Um, and the biggest one in, in the US over the past 50 years would simply be the heightened degree of political polarization. And the fact that it's not simply that people are yelling at one another on social media, but that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are further apart, um, whether or not you think of it as the Republicans moving further to the right, um, or however you conceptualize it, um, it's not simply changes in journalism that are going on, but that journalism is reacting to a society that is in many ways further apart than it was 50 years ago. I, Matt, I, I was hoping you could just tell us a little bit about how they do it in France versus the United States and what, what you've learned about maybe the differences. Are they dealing with the exact same issues or are there a different set of issues? Yeah. So. Um, Part of the conceit behind the project is that they're dealing with the exact same issues, but they're coming at it from sort of a completely different historical context. And so historically, the media in France are far less commercialized. Uh, there's a far more sort of literary orientation. Um, but they're facing the same issues. You know, they've got declining readerships that were never quite as high as, as you know, you had in the US. Um, you have, you know, precarity facing uh, journalists. You have questions about how they're going to make the transition to online. Um, the big difference uh, between Seattle and Toulouse, just sort of top level thing, is that just in the number of jobs lost, um, Toulouse is a fraction. They've lost um, mostly through retirements or buyouts because it's actually really, really expensive to fire someone uh, under French uh, labor law. Um, they've really more or less been able to keep the size of the journalistic core in Toulouse. Um, so where you've seen it cut in half, uh, more or less in Seattle, it's more or less stayed stable in Toulouse. Now, there's a flip side to that, which is that Seattle's had an extraordinary amount of innovation. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Um, it's already been mentioned, um, innovation in terms of having new online sites come up like Crosscut, like South Seattle Emerald, um, and so on. But you also have an extraordinary amount of innovation that's going on within uh, existing legacy news organizations, the Seattle Times, KUOW, as they try and find new, different, innovative ways to try and um, serve audiences better, but also to inform the public. Okay, well, I want to ask one more question before we go to uh, the audience, questions and comments from you guys. Um, so one thing that's changed that we're responding to in terms of the political situation is journalists being deemed the enemy of the people. Uh, we have a president who has shrugged off the murder of a journalist uh, in uh, uh, a Saudi Arabian but American resident journalist in Turkey. Um, <clears throat> have you guys felt any effect of that? Or has it, has it affected your attitude toward your work? being uh, enemy of the people? Are you getting pushback? Are you afraid? Are you, uh, are you uplifted when you read the comments section on the Seattle Times or? 
it's, it's is it does it matter is has it made oh, a yeah, difference it matters it matters i mean i think um so it's really interesting to hear the statistics that say journalists are now way more trusted than they used to be um did i get that right did yeah. i hear that right yeah so, that's local uh, locally local, local yeah. journalists okay all right so a little complication I, before Donald Trump existed, I knew I was in a profession before Donald Trump was a presidential candidate. Sorry. I, I knew I was in a profession that people kind of didn't trust. And I didn't totally get it, but I just knew that. That we were like down there with, I don't know, like dentists in terms of popularity. <laughs> like people just did not like us. And um, so I kind of got that. Um, but I also knew a lot of people thought we were valuable, so whatever. And uh, ha yeah, having someone with as big a megaphone as Donald Trump demean your profession all day long, yeah, it has an effect. It's demoralizing. Also, you know that he's coming at it from just a real malevolent place because he's trying to delegitimize the good, important work that you do. And he's an example of uh, why you need to exist. And he tries to turn himself into an example of why you shouldn't exist. And that's just a, a, a head trip, you know? Um, so that's discouraging and demoralizing, um, but it's also invigorating, you know? It can give you a reason to, uh, or one more reason to keep doing your work. And to hear that local journalism, um, at least, is rising in trust in the Trump era I don't know if you can draw a line between Trump and that or what, but that's that's nice to hear. Um, so the question was, does it affect me? Yeah, it affects me, it affects our democracy, it should affect all of us. It's kind of a bummer when you get, you, you know, you're in a tiny shrinking group that, in terms of the number of journalists and you get picked on and people don't like run to your defense. Anyone who's been in like middle school knows that that feels bad. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, um, so, yeah, I don't know. There's my stream of consciousness on that. Um, you know, one thing I'll say, I think commenters, angry commenters on stories have been in existence long before Donald Trump was president. So I, I think it's really been around since the Internet has been around. So I think that's something we've been dealing with for a long time. I, I think it's gotten worse, but I think that is an element we've always sort of had to tackle. Um, um, no, I, I'm not afraid. Uh, by this, I'm, I'm saddened, and and you, it gets complicated when sometimes there is a debate over what is a fact, right? And you, you know, a good story to me isn't necessarily a story where you say, he said, and then she said, and then you know, it shouldn't be a list of people giving their different sides of the argument, and then we're saying, well, there now we're being fair, right? I mean, you 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 need to go through some analysis and interpretation, and that can be harder when people are challenging you on basic facts, um, but you know, at the times. I, I do feel encouraged. We've, you know, a bright spot for us are the labs that we have. I'm part of one, Project Homeless. We also have Education Lab and Traffic Lab, which are basically community-funded journalism initiatives. And I think those are, are really great examples of us saying, you know, we, we believe in putting more journalists to some of these issues that are, are homelessness in particular, a very controversial one, um, that there's a lot of debate. I think we can all agree in the city about what's really happening with homelessness, and I think that by putting a lot of journalists to that issue, we're trying to say, okay, um, we think this is worth uh, more time, and um, we're gonna fight back against the people that are saying that there is no truth. I think we, resources mean a lot. Um, just 
quickly. Um, it's absolutely true that levels of trust in the news media, the survey questions have been asked differently over time, but that there was a height in the 50s and 60s where if you were Republican or if you were Democrat, more than half of the population said they had a reasonable amount of trust in the news media. Um, actually, um, the, the profession that it's closest to is actually lawyers. Um, now, I would make just sort of two points about that. Um, first, the fact that there is actually distrust in the news media is the historical norm. The 1950s and 60s were not the norm. That was a very particular period where you had relatively low levels of political um, polarization, and you also had relatively little competition among specific news outlets, okay? Um, and that's important just because part of the reason for a whole series of criticism is that you have a lot more competition within journalism, which means that you have attacks Okay, some people saying, look, the New York Times isn't covering it right. Other people saying Fox News isn't covering it right, which lowers trust overall. Um, but there's a third part to it, and that's the simple point that just because people will say that they don't trust the media doesn't mean that they don't trust specific news outlets and specific journalists. Same thing is true for lawyers. I might not like lawyers, but when I run into a legal situation, I certainly want their counsel. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, you hate Congress, but you love your congressman. Yeah, there's a little bit of that. Well, thank you guys, panelists, for talking. We're going to go to you. Get to thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, just and I'll repeat the question too. But come on up if you want. I want to play devil's advocate a little bit because I was really interested in the discussion about the media diet of the people on stage. So from what I can infer, nobody on stage has a print subscription to the Seattle Times. To be fair, I can get one every day when I walk in for free. But I do have a digital subscription to the Seattle Times, okay. I should say. And, and I'm not ashamed to say I don't have a print subscription to any paper, but I do. And... Uh, I think it would be, um, I don't know, uh, I, incredibly hypocritical and just like I would be a bad citizen if I didn't have digital subscriptions to the Seattle Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, which are my digital subscriptions. Okay, so, so at the onset you mentioned as part of the statistics that there's been a massive decline in print subscriptions, yet most people in this room probably don't have a print subscription, and so we might conclude that we're all sort of part of the problem, right? And I guess that, that has to be discussed, right? I mean. There are legitimate reasons why people don't have print subscriptions anymore. Um, and to what extent has this just been bad, plan bad strategic planning on the part of media organizations? Yeah so, the, so, yeah, so the question is, uh, you know, people may not be reading print subscriptions, but they're reading online subscriptions. And uh, <clears throat> what, to, to what degree was the, the decline of the newspapers and the uh, switch to digital bad planning on the part of, of uh, newspapers. Um, anybody want to tackle that? Well, I mean, I think, um, and I really feel like you're probably more qualified to answer this, but in the early days of the internet, nobody really knew, like no news organizations, I think, knew, saw what you had that brief sort of aha moment of what it could be, that this was no one thought they would have to worry about monetizing it. So we were giving it away for free. I mean, these websites, there weren't subscriptions. I mean, the Seattle Times website, when it started, was not a subscription website. I mean, same with my old paper in San Antonio. You could look at it for free. So it's really hard to convince people to pay for something 
that they could get for free, and now they're used to that. I mean, that's the challenge, I think, for a lot of news organizations, at least as far as the digital side of things. And to be fair to newspapers, which, in retrospect, really did make a mistake in training people to think that their content would be free online and should be free online. To be fair, there have been so many different theories about how you were going to get rich online if you just had enough traffic. And how do you get more traffic? You give away your product for free. And newspapers, including The Stranger, were suddenly looking at their websites and seeing, oh my god, we've got a million people, two million people a month reading The Stranger online. The Stranger had a print circulation of 90,000 at that time. So 90,000, a million. Okay, if Google you know, is telling us the truth, and someday our Google ads are going to make us you know, as much per ad as a print ad in The Stranger, and we've got a million, two million people online by giving this thing away for free. Let's keep giving away for free. Let's drive up our audience online. And uh, so that was a theory at a given moment, and it's proved totally wrong. But it, w it was a theory, and it contributed to um, you know, the rationalization that like, oh yeah, it's a good idea to give it away for free. It also, by the way, contributed to a lot of clickbait content. Because clicks are good, clicks are money, clicks are gonna make us rich, and what gets clicks is not necessarily what's good for democracy or good for an informed public. Yes. No, uh, I just wanted to go over one thing that uh, actually was mentioned earlier, which is you talked a lot about news being printed, but news is actually in very different forms, and maybe you should consider that from history, kind of at the bottom of the food chain, I think before news was maybe the court, uh, someone just saying it out loud or anything, but then you have the news printed, you have radio, you have TV, then you have online. So there's a kind of a historical evolution of how news is you know, transmitted to people. So of course there's going to be some repercussion on that because of the media. And I think that's what you addressed earlier is that nobody foresaw that actually online would take over. Um, news is still alive, it just has different forms. Um, online is actually amazing. Uh, on YouTube you have a lot of new news apps on YouTube, so I think it's cheaper for them, but they can do that, whereas before it was very expensive, very expensive to have ABC, ABC, I'm watching Friends 24, uh, started online, cheaper, um, a lot of them, RT, I know Russian television is a little more, you know, controversial, but started, there's a lot of news outlets, outlets that are distributed on YouTube. Um, Newspapers are maybe not read as much, but magazines, I mean, I've been an avid reader of the New Yorker. Uh, maybe you may want to address the fact that magazines cover more in-depth editorial, you know, look at the news versus online has to answer quick facts, quick news. It has to be said within the minute when it happens. So not going to have the newspapers because the news we used to get for facts, we get this instantaneously versus maybe we may need reporters or journalists, uh, not reporters, but journalists, and that maybe you might want to address the difference between a journalist and a reporter, but the fact that, you know, maybe journalists are going to have to comment then on the Well, let's have these guys respond. Yeah, yeah I, I just, I, I challenge some of the things you said. Uh, the 
the degree of um, instantaneous of your inf you know instantaneousness of your information is not correlated to its value or its truthfulness or its factiness. Um, and some of the examples you cite, I mean, Russia today, right? It just it has a presence on YouTube, sure, but that is a government-financed operation, and so that's how it makes money. The Russian government gives it money. Um, so I the you brought up a lot of points, but I, I think the, I didn't hear a lot of answers in there, but the, the thing that it reminded me of is the really deep need for consumers of news to be more than superficially aware of where their information is coming from. Really try to understand the structure uh, and the business structure that is behind the information that's coming to you. Um, the superficial impression can be totally, totally wrong. When I, and I, I have two points to that. One, what you said about instantaneousness of news. I mean, even, even the smallest news brief, right, about a crime that happened can take time, you know, even if a newspaper is putting that online pretty quickly. Like, you have to check your facts. So that, that all takes time. And the second thing I'll say is that The New Yorker and magazines like that, or even Vice News or, or TV News, often where they're going for their stories is they're looking at local news. They're actually finding those ideas in the local papers. They would have had no idea what was happening if a local newspaper didn't cover it first. The Associated Press does that too. So, you know, then they can spend their time and their money doing a longer story. But if we don't exist, if we're not there to produce the initial news, whether it's on print or digital, a lot of those bigger stories don't exist because they don't have presence in a lot of cities. I mean, Seattle's a big city, but think about the cities across the US, smaller cities, towns, that their local news is their only source. But that's what I said. I'm sorry, but I think you misunderstood me. That's exactly what I said. I said maybe you're not taking in the fact that there are two different kinds of reporting and journalism, and it's that there are, there's this thing online or whatever that happens really fast, and then they have different layers then of journalism. So no, I, I was going to say, I, I think you've, you've articulated something that's really important and that's implicit um, in the conversation, which is that there isn't any going back. And so this goes back to the prior question. It's not as if we can imagine that somehow we're gonna go back to the days of coffee houses and printed newspapers and we're all gonna sit around and chat about it. Partly because it wasn't as great as everybody thinks it was, right? Actually, if you just look at like the news coverage, um, if you just look at the news coverage itself, you know, um, political reporting, both at the local and at the national level, tends to be more analytical, tends to be longer, tends to be more critical and skeptical of claims that government officials put forward. And so all of that, I think, is actually a progress and change. I think really the key question in front of not just individual journalists, but citizens uh, more broadly, is how you weigh the benefits, which are Clearly, there are many benefits to the emergent forms of journalism that are being practiced with all of the drawbacks, right? Um, and so there, I think it's, it's an honest question and it's an open debate in terms of how we go about thinking about, you know, basically what's good and what's bad and what's the sort of sum takeaway for people who are trying to have, you know, informed citizenship, uh, you know, in a democracy. No, no, no. You, no, we need to go on to somebody else. We, we have other people that need a chance. Here? Hi there. Uh, yes, please. Um, I'd like to know how you all feel as journalists uh, when you saw one of your colleagues get kicked out of the press briefing by President Obama 
few years ago, and uh, to the applause of some of your other colleagues. And how does it make you feel as journalists when the Obama's um, Justice Department pursued James Risen? And as journalists, how does it make you feel when Dan Rather pushed a story well after most everyone else knew that it was based on a forged document? I mean, it's, uh, I, I'm just going to take a wild guess and uh, think that you or say that your inference here is that we're mad, we're, we're holding Trump to a higher standard or something. We're mad because he's uh, not. I'm asking you to answer my questions. I don't have to. But I will. And uh, yeah, I don't like journalists being mistreated, I don't like abuses of power. That's uh, not, you know, that's something I got into journalism to kind of push back against. So I'm for freedom of the press. I'm for people being allowed into briefings if that's your issue. Um, I'm not for bad faith actors kind of blending in with journalists and um, by their presence kind of discrediting the whole thing. Um, so that can happen too. And uh, other than that, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm not, I don't know what to say to your question. I mean, you raise an interesting point about, you know, you mentioned Dan Rather, right? I think it's incumbent on all of us to, to do the best that we can so that, because we can be undercut at any time, you know, when, when these mistakes have happened and, you know, from plagiarism to fabrication, all of those things, if, if newspapers or any news organization isn't vigilant, that those things aren't happening, um, obviously that can uh, erode the trust of, of the news-consuming public. Another? Thank you. Over here. Uh, I wanted to ask Dr. Powers, how is the readership in Toulouse? Are they losing readers? Um, as fast as uh, you are, as we are here? Yeah, so first, Matt. Dr. Powers is an Austin Powers thing. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> um, in Toulouse, uh, news readership has always been much lower than it has been. Um, they are both losing readers and readers are aging. Um, and so that's a similar trend, uh, but just the amount of readership that they had was never anywhere near as high as you had in the United States. Yes, sir. Uh, the old Simon and Garfunkel line was going through my mind, uh, though it never made the New York Times in the Daily News, it said. And you talk about local news, but you talk, but your local is a major metropolitan uh, reach. The, lo the small papers in the sub suburban areas and rural areas, which are also rapidly declining and disappearing, now we're ending up with a realm of missing information because nobody's covering those stories. And in the past, there were folks that had beats covering the local uh, small governments, go to the city council meetings, question the mayor, and, and so forth. So while the analysis of local candidates might be better, there's a realm of missing information that's just not getting covered. And bloggers don't see, bloggers, especially those with access to crime, are not providing an adequate substitute for that old. Is there anything that could substitute for 
that old-fashioned beat reporter, especially at the small local level. Well, there you get to the, the, yeah. So the question was, what about what's happening in local journalism, not in the city, but in the communities of the the larger Puget Sound area, where small weeklies uh, are going away, and you're you're missing a huge slice of information. One of the best examples of this is the East Side. Uh, you know, when uh, when I was editor and publisher of East Side Week, we had you know an alternative newspaper. We had the Daily newspaper and the Journal American. Uh, we had, uh, the Seattle Times had a huge bureau in Bellevue, uh, Eli said he worked there, you know, um, and plus there was a, a healthy dose of community weeklies throughout the area, every Sammamish Valley News, the Woodenville paper, the Mercer Island paper, and I think one of the really disturbing trends that you're talking about is the kind of Alzheimer's that's taking place in terms of the public record of these communities. It also used to be that I think there used to be five or six full-time reporters in the region at the King County Courthouse. And uh, the, um, we, we have major regional institutions that are very undercovered. And no blog has really taken the place of that, although in some smaller communities that has happened. Um, after the election, I went with a group down to Sherman County in Oregon, which um, had a, uh, uh, they voted exactly the opposite of Seattle in, in the election. They, they were, you know, 80% for Trump and we were 80% for Hillary, right? And so we went down and had a, uh, a gathering of Seattle and Sherman County folk to talk it through and learn about each other and the different perspectives. And the newspaper down there was one woman with a blog, and she was doing a really good job of covering Sherman County, uh, Oregon, which has not got very many people in it. <laughs> but um, so, you know, it can substitute in some cases for the basics, but I think you're right. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a real missing piece that, that beyond the PI or beyond the Times or anything else, and I, I don't have an answer for that because the financial model for sustaining it is not there. And one of the things that that kind of boils down to, um, in my mind, is you know people have, rightly so, understandably so, a lot of expectations of journalists and a lot of feelings about journalists and a lot of maybe you should things to say to journalists and okay, but you miss us when we're gone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. And there, I, you had a question. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I appreciated that, I guess it was you who asked, uh, what are the gaps in the news now? Okay, that is probably pretty clear to everyone in here uh, what the gaps are. You look around, you're seeing a face like your own. Um, that is a problem. Okay, I'm a freelancer around the greater Seattle area. My name is Carla Bell. I've written for Crosscut, for The Stranger. Um, for me and for South Seattle Emerald, to pay a whole lot of places, also Ebony Magazine, um, I have had a hard time, uh, even though I've written for all of those publications, getting the next piece in. Okay, I also have a real big problem with the fact that black stories are covered by white writers around here. Um, it's this is something. 
able to squeeze in anywhere. Um, everybody knows what freelancers are getting paid is peanuts, obviously. Um, there's barely any staff writers, I understand that, but then there's no black staff writers, uh, pretty much. Um, that Mark has got over to the Seattle Times, that's great, but doesn't mean there's a way for me in because he's there. Um, so there's, there's, there's not a lot of networking um, that is able to, or that as far as I can see, is able to help bring writers of color along. I think I tried to connect with you, Vinu, at one point on LinkedIn, and um, I'm still waiting for the <laughs> Oh, well, <laughs> I, I don't use LinkedIn. Uh, uh, that yeah, that's why. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'll call sure. people out. If I'm, if I'm yeah. a journalist and I'm local with you and we're in the same industry and you're obviously in a position where you can crack the door for a writer of color, then I feel like that's a, a responsibility to uh, someone else in the journalism world. And it's, it's just not happening. So I want to see um, how we can do something about that gap because it's a, it's a crevasse. It's huge in Seattle. And I don't care... Um, if you publish 50 pieces in your black, it's almost like you're brand new trying to get the 51st in. Right. So what can we do about yeah, that? Like take because it. when I look around this room, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Right here. Well, I mean, I'll go back to what I said earlier, which is like we need more diversity in newsrooms, not just newspapers, all, all newsrooms, radio, TV, everything. Um, everywhere you go. Um, and I think that's how we... we get to solving those issues of doing better coverage. Um, because just people have different experiences of, of, of the world. And if you haven't been there, I think you don't want anyone in your newspaper, you don't want everyone being all the same. Um, you want some variety of folks. I mean, it's, I came from, again, a place, a city that is majority Latino. I'm Latina. When I came here, it was like, you know, there was no, there's no Latino journalist organization here. We're talking about starting one up, and I hope we do. But, you know, it's trying to find that community. It's, it's hard, but there are some um, wonderful journalists of color um, at the Seattle Times who I think are doing really amazing work, and, and the paper wants to do better. That's great. But I want to hear how they're going to actually, what are they doing to actually open the door? Because I'm knocking, and I'm not seeing anything happening. I don't even hear back from these people. So I want, you know, more than lip service. So, you know, I'm going to connect with you because okay. I know that you write for the homeless niche, and I love that. So maybe you can do something. Okay. Thank you. Sure. Yes. So I have a question about uh, encouraging conversations across the political divide and what the media can do to, to encourage that. And in particular, one obstacle, I think, is that the, the uh, inevitable bias that you find in, in any news organization, probably is, you know, it's commonplace. You know, people say, well, MSNBC is, you know, left-leaning and Fox News is right-leaning and therefore, you know, it's, it's all a toss-up. But it, it seems to me that that's not really accurate at all. That there's a very important, I mean, from the left, I would say, um, one of them is a real news organization. The other is, is not so much. It's more of a propaganda organization. But my, my question for you is just a comment on how can the news media help us cross that divide in light of the, uh, the inherent bias that every organization, every news organization would have? I have an answer that doesn't involve the media. It's, uh, oh, sorry. So, so the question was how can the media help Cross the partisan divide. Um, I think this is the 
Yeah, and uh, what can what can you do about media outlets that are propaganda outlets posing as truthful outlets and truthful outlets that don't recognize the inherent bias in any human production? Um, so what can you do about that? I actually have started to think that this is another thing that we put on the media to solve uh, that the media actually can't single-handedly solve. The issue is uh, education, I'm sorry. But, uh, and people don't, people fall asleep at this answer, but the issue is the education system. And so if media consumers, which is everyone, if everyone in this country uh, was receiving a better education that fostered critical thinking skills, that fostered media literacy, that fostered awareness of how government even works, then you would not have the problem of sizable chunks of the population being duped by propaganda outlets and thinking that they're news outlets. So uh, it's, a, it's a thing that the media gets blamed for because it's easier to do that than to say, not you, but like for one to say, oh, I'm an idiot, or oh, my relatives are idiots, or nicer than that, they have been misled. They, I, I feel badly for their comprehension of the world. It's <laughs> impoverished. And um, the media can't solve that. If you can just shout, that's fine. Yeah. Do you want to repeat the question? And then? No, I just, some people are having trouble hearing the question. So what can we do now here to make the situation better? Um, this isn't necessarily an answer for, for you guys as like consumers, but I'll just say something that we're, we're trying to do. Um, so the, the Seattle Times has partnered with the Solutions Journalism Network to, and, the, and our grants, so the Project Homeless Education Lab, et cetera, are solutions journalism projects. And the idea behind solutions journalism, not to get super wonky, is um, rather than necessarily covering something and say, oh, like doing an investigation on something negative and be like, well, this is terrible, this program's failing, the end, right? Which is what a lot of news can be, um, even in-depth news, is to try to look at where, is there someone doing X better, right? Is there someone dealing with their homeless population better, like another city? Is there um, an education system that's doing better? Um, and, and, and it's not like a rosy picture. It's not that we're go gonna go there and say, this program's perfect. No, you, you really ask the tough questions and you look, what are the problems with that program? What didn't work? What wouldn't work in Seattle? But you're trying to have a dialogue in the stories. And I think that kind of journalism is, is what we need that can maybe help have 
these conversations. Um, I think, you know, after the election, there were a lot of like these, like, you know, the, the bigs, the Times and the, the New York Times, the Washington Post were like flying to like fly over country and like, let's talk to the voters and who, who, who could this be who voted for Trump? And I just think that that is a really, you know, it's, it's partly it's a little too late um, to do that kind of story. Um, you know, these are places that are living, breathing right now, um, communities and were prior to the election and it's incumbent on all of us to be in those places. And then that goes back to your question about how do we do better in these rural or smaller communities maybe that aren't on the coast, right? Um, and that's where I think another thing that needs to be done is, is be creative. I know Solutions Journalism Network is working with a lot of smaller communities, actually newsrooms across the country, um, to try to give them the resources they don't have. Um, uh, Marcus, who was supposed to be here today in my place, um, started the South Seattle Emerald, and I think that's a wonderful example of going to a place that maybe we hadn't been able to cover as well and, and covering it yourself. I mean, obviously, that's, this isn't a complete answer because not every town has the resources or the person or the people that have the knowledge to create that, but I mean, I think it's just a sign of that um, I think more dialogue is better um, more conversations are better, and I, it's hard for me to answer that question. But I think I think we're trying, um, and you know, again, that's why I go back. I don't want to be on Twitter because I think what we all want to do is react and get angry. And I think if we were just to sit and have, I hate even saying, you know, conversations with, you know, it just it just might help. Like we can't just go into these situations all the time and assume that we have the answer. And I would say that is the same of journalists as well. We, we, we need to go in knowing what we don't know. In terms of what journalists can do, just to take a swing at it, um, from my perspective, you know, that kind of, what can I do? What can I do about this problem? I think that's like the deep animating impulse of every journalist, why you get up in the morning, to try to do something positive, right? For your city or for uh, the country. And um, one of the things that we have had to do, those of us who have been in journalism over the last decade and a half and seen the massive changes, is become very open-minded, become platform agnostic, uh, be humble about the ways that stories succeed and don't succeed. So there's these kind of dispositional things that we have to do, and they're hard for anyone in a changing industry to do, um, but we have to. And then we also have to celebrate the things that do, we do well. So you're asking what, you're kind of asking what have we done, right? So Knut referred to this early in the program, but I've been on this more than year long project now of trying to enforce this state's transparency law when it comes to political ads uh, on Facebook and Google and other digital platforms. Where does my motivation for this come from? It comes from the rampant misinformation on Facebook that affected people's comprehension of their reality in the last election. So this is something I love about journalism. I can see that. I can see that Russians were able to buy ads in rubles on Facebook that lied to Americans about what was going on in their election. And I can say, wait, uh, do we even have any regulation or laws related to this in Washington state? Oh, we do. We have a 1972 law that I can pull out of the toolbox and start banging on Facebook and Google with, and I've been doing that for more than a year with some pretty good results, one of which uh, is, and I don't mean this as in ha-ha good, 
But Google has now said, after resisting for a while, that it can't actually be as transparent as Washington's law requires, and so it's going to stop selling political ads in Washington state until it can get it right. That's my reporting that caused that. Facebook has made a lot of changes to its uh, transparency in political ads, and it is now being sued by the Attorney General of Washington, Bob Ferguson, along with Facebook. That's my reporting that caused that. So, you know, if I sound a little edgy about like being, uh, if I sound a little edgy, it's because I think often people assume arrogant. If I sound a little edgy or arrogant to you, it's because I, I think people don't often understand what it is that we've been through and what it is we do and what we can accomplish. But I also really am trying, and maybe this comes off as arrogance, but I'm really trying to tell you that I think the answer to this question is not just you looking at us and saying, what can you do better? It is you asking yourselves, what can I do? Because that's the place that we're in right now. And so I, I want to give you an answer. And one of them is, if you are merely consuming free news, you are not doing enough. You need to subscribe to an organization that you believe in, that employs journalists who do work that you find valuable. Or you need to donate. Subscribe or donate. Because the business model is broken, we all see that, and the answer is to, I mean, no one has the answer, but the thing that you need is working journalists. That's what you all want, that's what we all want, and that money doesn't come from nowhere. So if you're, if you're only feasting on free news, you're part of the problem, even though I respect you. So <laughs> sort of. Let me, I was gonna say, let me just suggest um, a way of maybe framing that slightly differently, which is that it's not the journalists are the problem or that people are the problem per se, but it could be that there isn't a market solution for this problem at this particular moment in time. Um, the United States is, is unique, really, amongst um, Western European or North American democracies in really the trivial amount of money that it actually gives to uh, in public funding to support journalism. Um, in the United States, public media, so you're talking about corporation public broadcasting, so that's radio, television, um, even when you include sponsors and things like that, it's less than $10 per person. Um, you go up to Canada, it's about 35. You go to the UK, it's about $90. You start to get into the Scandinavian countries and you're looking at about $150 a person. So the level of underfunding that actually exists in this country is really, really, um, um, uh, extraordinary it put, when you put it in comparative perspective. Great. Well, thank you for your questions and comments. Thank you, panel. It's been really interesting. Thanks a lot, and travel safe. <laughs>